Uh, this Sunday is Palm Sunday, as you know, and although our calendar is not precisely aligned with the Jewish calendar, the annual timing of Resurrection Sunday that many people call Easter, I like to call it Resurrection Sunday, it is calculated in such a way as to keep it close to the Jewish Passover. Jesus was crucified on, at the very same time that the Passover lambs were being killed and prepared for the Passover meal in Jerusalem. Once again, in the infinite power and wisdom of God, he orchestrated the circumstances of the death of the Lord Jesus on the cross to perfectly fulfill the Old Testament picture of the sacrificial lamb, the Passover lamb. The Apostle Paul confirms this very clearly when he, when he wrote in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. And the Sunday before the crucifixion, as Cole read just a moment ago, the Lord Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a young donkey, fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9. He was presenting himself to the nation of Israel as the Messiah, the promised Savior. The people understood exactly what was happening. They understood this prophetic fulfillment. We know that because they began to shout phrases from the well-known Messianic Psalm, Psalm 118, when they said, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And the, the title, Son of David, uh, was a phrase designated for the Messiah throughout Old Testament prophecies. And the word Hosanna is a Hebrew word that means save now or save us now. Uh, so what they are shouting when they say Hosanna to the son of David, they're saying save us now our Messiah. They knew what was going on. That's why they laid down their coats in front of him. That's why they cut branches from the trees. The, uh, the, 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 the Gospel of John records that they were palm branches. And they laid them in the road in front of Jesus as he rode into Jerusalem that day on a donkey. You may know or remember uh, that in that day, in Jesus' day, the horse was an animal whose primary purpose was war. They pulled chariots. They were ridden by military officers. The horse was a symbol of war. But the donkey, on the other hand, was an agricultural animal used to pull plows or wagons. The donkey was a symbol of prosperity in times of peace. Uh, so Jesus on that day was no threat to the Romans. He was not riding into Jerusalem to start a war with Rome. He was coming as the Prince of Peace. As a side note, you may remember that when Jesus returns at the end of the tribulation to destroy the armies of the world at Armageddon and to set up his millennial kingdom, you know what he's riding that day, if you may remember those things. He's riding a white horse. Revelation 19 says his eyes will be like a flame of fire. His robe will appear to have been dipped in blood. And across his robe will be written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus will be coming for war on that day, and he's going to wipe out the world's armies that have gathered in the valley of Megiddo to destroy Israel. That day he'll be riding a white horse prepared for battle. But on Palm Sunday, Jesus rode a donkey, a farm animal, an animal that represented prosperity and security and peace. And all of the crowds of average folks who gathered along the street recognized what he was doing and called out to him as their Messiah. Of course, several days later, the Jewish authorities took over and they saw to it that the Messiah was executed like a criminal. 
He was a threat to their authority. He was a threat to their social status, to their financial security, to their political position. He absolutely had to be eliminated. And in the blindness of their sin and the hardness of their hearts, they, they murdered the very one that 1,500 years of Passovers, literally 1,500 Passovers had been pointing toward. John the Baptist had so powerfully preached, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that afternoon, as the families in Jerusalem killed and prepared their lambs for the Passover meal that evening, at that very time, the spotless, sinless Lamb of God was hanging on the cross, pouring out His life for us. Then 50 days later, 50 days after the crucifixion, 50 days after Passover, on the day of Pentecost, the Apostle Peter preached to thousands of men in Jerusalem, and his words are recorded in Acts chapter 2. And that's where I'd like you to turn, if you would, this morning. Acts chapter 2. <clears throat> we won't read Peter's entire sermon, but we will see his focus, and it will be our focus. Today and next week, I want to think about the power of the resurrection. That's how we're titling our thoughts. The power of the resurrection. And we're going to read a portion of Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 22. We're going to go to verse 36. Acts chapter 2, and I'll start to read in verse 22. Men of Israel, this is Peter preaching. Hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified, have put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David, King David he's talking about, says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne, he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses." Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ." Peter says in the early part of this sermon here that he that it was not possible 
for Jesus to be held by the pains of death. That's what he said in verse 24. It was not possible that he should be held by death. Then he quotes a portion of Psalm 16 to prove this. When that little piece you've got in your Bible in verse 26 to verse 28 comes right out of Psalm 16. He says, God the Father was not going to leave the soul of the Lord Jesus in Hades, Hades being the place of the departed dead, nor would he allow the body of the Lord Jesus to decay. So resurrection was a necessity. And Peter says King David couldn't possibly have been talking about himself because David's been dead for a thousand years. And we all know where his grave is, Peter says. But God had sworn to him that one of his descendants would sit on the throne one day. So David was speaking prophetically about the Messiah, the Christ, Peter says. And we know he was raised from the dead, Peter goes on to say, because we saw him alive after his crucifixion. In fact, I want you to turn one page back to chapter 1, or maybe it might be two pages in your Bible, to Acts chapter 1, and see what Dr. Luke recorded here in Acts chapter 1 when he begins his letter describing the Acts of the Apostles. <clears throat> Let's look at the first three verses here of Acts 1. Dr. Luke writes, The former account I made, O Theophilus, the former account he's talking about, is Luke's gospel. The Gospel of Luke, who he also wrote to his friend Theophilus. And he said, the former account, like what we call now the Gospel of Luke, I made of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So Dr. Luke starts out by saying, Now my dear friend Theophilus, remember the last thing I told you, the last letter I wrote you that told you the story of the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> now he said, I'm going to tell you the story of what his followers did. And he said, he presented himself alive after his suffering, after he died on the cross, by many infallible proofs. And he said, I was around for 40 days. So Jesus showed himself to the disciples on numerous occasions. You can read that at the end of, of each of the Gospels. We see from these New Testament scriptures that Jesus ate with the disciples. He was not a ghost. He was not a spirit. They touched him. They talked with him. He was real. He was alive. He had a real body, although it was a different kind of body. He appeared to them once in a locked room and scared the daylights out of them when he first showed up. But it was a real body. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, there was one occasion where there was a group of 500 people who saw Jesus all at the same time. He appeared to 500 people at once. And when Paul was writing to this letter to in 1 Corinthians, about 20 years after this event here, about 20 years after Pentecost, he says to his Corinthian friends, he says, there's still a whole bunch of people alive who saw him. If you don't think Jesus was alive, he says to his friends, go down to Jerusalem and talk to him. There's still a bunch of people who, who are still alive who saw him during those 40 days he was on the earth. So Peter says in this, this sermon here, that Psalm 16 is a prophecy about Jesus' resurrection. 
that God would not leave his soul in Hades. He would not leave his body in the grave. And, and he said, Jesus is alive. We saw him. We are witnesses of this. And he says, all of this proves in verse 36. He says that Jesus is Lord and Christ. He's Lord, meaning he's God. And he's Christ, meaning he's the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised Savior. And let me give you just a few thoughts about the power of the resurrection. The first one is this. The resurrection is powerful. Because it proves that Jesus Christ is God. No one can rise from the dead by his own willpower. In fact, Jesus Christ said in John chapter 10 and verse 18, he said he would lay down his life and he would take it back again. Nobody, Jesus says, can take my life away from me. He says, I have the authority from God the Father to lay down my life and take it back again. And nobody but God can do that. You can read that passage in John 10, 18 if you wish to do so. But Peter says the resurrection is powerful because it proves that Jesus Christ is God. Nobody can bring himself back from the dead except God. Secondly, the resurrection is powerful because it proves that Jesus is truly the promised Savior. He's truly the Messiah. David's prophecy about the resurrection of the Messiah was fulfilled in Jesus, Peter says. So he has to be the one. He has to be the one we've been looking for. No one else has ever been raised from the dead like Jesus, raised by his own power that was granted to him by God the Father. And so he said that it proves not only that he's God, it proves that he's really the Messiah. He's really the Christ. That's why he says, no, assuredly, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. He's proved that he's God and he's proved that he's the Messiah, that he's really, he's really the promised Savior. And then thirdly, the resurrection is powerful because it proves that Jesus accomplished his mission. Peter said in his sermon here in verse 33, he's, he, that Jesus is exalted to the right hand of God. He is now at the right hand of the Father in heaven. So the mission has been accomplished. He is done with the work of redemption. All of you are well familiar with Jesus crying out on the cross. It is finished. He is now in heaven at the Father's right hand. Then Peter quotes Psalm 110 and says, David didn't descend into heaven. He said that he had to be speaking about the Messiah. Of course, Peter says, I saw Jesus ascend into heaven. We saw, if you could read that in Acts 1 as well, they, all the disciples stood there and watched Jesus going up into the clouds. So once again, Jesus had to be the Son of God. He had to be the Christ. He fulfilled the prophecies of Scripture. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8 says, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. John the Baptist said he came to take away the sins of the world. If Jesus died to pay the penalty for our sin, but he could not defeat death by being resurrected, then he could not ascend into heaven. He could not be seated at God's right hand. He could not break the curse of sin. He could not really be God. He could not truly forgive us. But he did rise from the dead. He did ascend into heaven, Peter preaches. He did break sin's power. He did destroy the works of the devil. So the resurrection is powerful because it proves that Jesus accomplished his mission. Then fourthly, the resurrection is powerful because it fulfills the hope of God's people. Fulfills a long time hope of God's people. And I'd like you, if you would, to turn to Job chapter 19, if you would, please. 
Job chapter 19. This is an amazing and beautiful expression of the hope of the Old Testament saints of God. There are some people I have read who say that the concept of a bodily resurrection, a physical resurrection, was very weak or relatively unknown in the Old Testament. I'm not sure why they think that, especially after reading this passage in Job 19. This is one of the coolest passages on resurrection in the Old Testament. Maybe I shouldn't call it cool, because maybe that's a generational word, I don't know. I could call it awesome. That's very up to date, but it's also overused. Uh, Some young people could take a bite of pizza and call it awesome. And I assure you that this passage of Scripture is far more awesome than any bite of pizza that could ever be had, and I like pizza. But one thing that makes this passage of Scripture so fascinating is the time period in which it was written. Looking at the way life is described in the book of Job, it appears that he lived just a few hundred years after the flood, approximately around the time of Abraham. He lived a very long life, similar to Abraham's life. Abraham lived to be 175. Job may have lived even a little longer. At the beginning of the book of Job, it says he had seven sons and three daughters and 11,000 head of livestock, if I've got that figured correctly. So he's not some young 25-year-old guy just starting out with 10 kids and 11,000 head of livestock. He's probably at least 50, if not older. And at the end of the book of Job, it says he lived 140 more years after his terrible trials that we know about. So by the time Job dies, he's, he's, he's pushing 200, which is very typical for the first few hundred years after the flood. He's also the priest for his family, offering sacrifices. Again, that same time period as Abraham. He seems to be well aware of Adam and Noah's flood. He mentions them in the book. The Chaldeans who come and raid him and steal a bunch of his stuff, they were nomadic raiders in those days. Several hundred years later, uh, the the Chaldeans became city-dwelling scholars, as they were in Daniel's day that we read about them in Daniel chapter 1 many months ago. So we place Job's life right around the same time as Abraham, which would be 2000 B.C. (coughs) So Job lived about 4,000 years ago, just a few hundred years after the flood. There are no references in Job to God's covenant with Abraham or the law given by Moses, which came much later. So we, I think, are very safe in dating the book of Job at about 4,000 years ago. So Job's knowledge of God and the coming Redeemer and the resurrection, really very, very interesting. The knowledge of God and His truth was passed down for many generations after the flood. Abraham was a descendant of Shem. You remember Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Abraham was a descendant of Shem, and Abraham was born about 292 years after Shem came off the ark, we learned from the genealogy of Genesis 11. So if Job lived about the same time, we know there was still a lot of knowledge about God in many of these families, and Job was living three or 400 years after the flood of Noah. So Job 19 records one of Job's lowest points in his suffering. Many of you are familiar with the story. We won't tell you a lot of the story of Job. And I want to begin to read with you in verse 9 and go up to verse 22, just so you can see what Job is experiencing, what Job is wrestling with here, and then we'll look at our 
our tremendous resurrection passage just a couple verses later. <clears throat> Job speaking about God in Job 19.9, He has stripped me of my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side and I am gone. My hope he has uprooted like a tree. He has also kindled his wrath against me, and he counts me as one of his enemies. He's talking about God. His troops come together and build up their road against me. They encamp all around my tent. He has removed my brothers far from me. My acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My relatives have failed, and my close friends have forgotten me. Those who dwell in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I am an alien in their sight. I call my servant, but he gives no answer. I beg him with my mouth. My breath is offensive to my wife. I am repulsive to the children of my own body. Even young children despise me. I arise and they speak against me. All my close friends abhor me, and those whom I love have turned against me. My bones clings to my skin and my flesh. I have escaped by the skin of my teeth, meaning escaped death. And that's where we get that phrase, the escape by the skin of the teeth, comes right out of Job 19. Not much skin on your teeth, so Job is barely saying, I just barely, just barely survived all of this. So Job, Job is feeling totally crushed. He is he's feeling isolated. He is rejected. He is alone. He is forsaken. He says, my wife doesn't even want to be close to me. Little kids hate me. You know, all my close friends abhor me. Nobody wants to even be around me. They look at my life and, 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 and I just feel like God's against me. Every place I turn, I just feel crushed and isolated and rejected and alone and forsaken. It's, it's the darkest of days in Job's entire life. He has been reduced to nothing. But you know what? He still has one ray of hope. One last string to hang on to. That he's going to be vindicated by God, his Redeemer, at the last day of judgment, which requires a resurrection. Now let's read this great passage starting in verse 23. We just go to verse 27. If you're a Bible highlighter, I would encourage you, mark these verses so you can find them again. What a tremendous passage of Scripture. Job says in verse 23, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book, that they were engraved on a rock with an iron pen and led forever. Of course, Job had no idea God was going to answer that prayer. That's why we got the book of Job. <laughs> but at the time that he said that, he didn't know that. But, 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 but he says, what I'm about to say, he says, I wish my words would be inscribed in a book and written down and carved in rock with an iron pen so it would last forever. I wish these words would last forever. Well, Job, they did, by God's grace. And these are the words. He says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and He shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my heart shall behold, and not another. How my heart yearns within me. Wow. What an incredible thought. Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives. He is the God of forgiveness. He is the God of mercy. He's the God of compassion. He's, he's my Redeemer. I know He's alive. And he said, I know He's going to come to earth someday. Wow, what an incredible thought for, for a prophecy of the coming of Christ. 
He said, I know my Redeemer's alive, and one day he's going to stand on this earth. And Job was writing this 4,000 years ago. 2,000 years before Jesus came. 2,000 years before Jesus ever came. I know that my Redeemer is alive, and He is going to stand one day on this earth. And He said, even after I'm dead, my skin is destroyed, my body has decayed in the grave. He said, I know one day in my flesh, I am going to see God. So Job says, after he dies, his body's going back to the dust. One day he's going to have another body, and he's going to see God. And he said, I can hardly wait. He said, whom I will see for myself, my eyes will behold and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Job looks at his life, and he looks at the struggles of his life, and he looks at all the trials of his life, and he looks at everything he's lost, and he looks at the rejection and the sense of being forsaken, even by God. He has a sense of being forsaken by God, and yet he still hangs on to that one thread. I know that my Redeemer is alive, and one day he's coming to the earth, and even though I'm going to die, one day I'm going to be resurrected by my Redeemer. I'm going to get a new body, and I am going to see God face to face. I'm going to be with God for eternity. Wow, what an incredible statement of faith from way back in the Old Testament. See, he had no hope left for this life at that time, but his prayer is that he'll be vindicated in the end. And this knowledge of the coming Savior and the future resurrection of the body, spending eternity in the presence of God, that that has been the hope of God's people for thousands of years. You see, the resurrection is powerful because it fulfills the hope of of God's people. Remember what the Lord Jesus Christ said, John 14, 19. Jesus says, Because I live, you will also live. You see, Jesus' resurrection guarantees the hope of God's people to live forever with the Lord Jesus in heaven. Then let me close with one final passage here on the power of the resurrection. That's in Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. The whole book of Hebrews describes why the way of the Lord Jesus Christ is so much better than the law of Moses and the Old Testament system. The issue that's being dealt with in chapter 7 that we're going to look at is is the issue (coughs) of having a priest to go before God on your behalf. Uh, Who will intercede for you? Who will represent you before God like the Old Testament priests or like many priests pretend to do today? Who can actually represent us before God? And we're just going to take one little piece of this chapter. We're going to start to read in verse 23. And we'll read to verse 27. And remember, he's writing to the Hebrews, showing this comparison between the Old Testament priests and the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, also there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. In other words, he said, when we think back to the Old Testament, there wasn't just one high priest. There was a whole bunch of high priests. Why? Because they kept dying, like everybody does. Sooner or later, everybody dies. You've got to have another high priest. Some Jewish historians claim that there were 84 high priests from Aaron, Moses' brother Aaron, in those early years, down to the destruction of the temple by the Romans in A.D. 70. 
during that whole period of about 1,500 years or so, uh, they say there, there were 84 high priests. And of course, the major problem is they all eventually died just like everybody else. But he says in verse 24, but he, meaning Jesus, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's, for this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Wow. Beautiful thoughts there. He says Jesus continues forever because he's alive. He can forgive us. He can save us to the very end. That's when he needs to be saved to the uttermost. In other words, he can go all the way to the end. He can complete it. He can finalize it. He can go right to the end. He doesn't start our salvation and then sit back and hope we can pull it off in the end. No, he saves us all the way to the end. Because he's alive. He can go before God on our behalf, and he does so. He always lives to make intercession for us. And intercession simply means to go between us and God. The writer of Hebrews said here he's holy, he's harmless, he's innocent, he's undefiled. And he offered himself as the once for all sacrifice for our sin. We see in verse dead, last part of verse 27. He did this once for all when he offered up himself. You know, you know what? If you're trying to get to heaven, you don't need anything but Jesus. You only need a relationship with Jesus Christ by faith. Faith in who he is and what he did on the cross and what he is doing today. Because Jesus Christ is alive, he can make intercession for us, he continues to do so, he can save us all the way to the end. <laughs> he doesn't <coughs> excuse me, just start the plan of salvation and then hope we can pull it off when, when we come to the end of life. Trust Jesus and then be as good as you can be. You know what? You can never be as good as you can be. You can never be perfect. You can never live up to God's standard. It's impossible. That's why Jesus says, I can save them all the way to the end if they will come to God through me. Verse 25. Great thought there. Another great highlighting verse if you're, if you're interested in doing that. So the, rec the resurrection is powerful. Because it proves that Jesus Christ is God. The resurrection is powerful because it proves Jesus is truly the promised Savior. The resurrection is powerful because it proves that Jesus accomplished His mission. The resurrection is powerful because it fulfills the hope of God's people. The resurrection is powerful because it means that we have a living Savior, a priest who lives forever, who goes before God on our behalf, and He advocates for us because of who He is and what He has done. Buddha is dead. Confucius is dead. Muhammad is dead. Hare Krishna is dead. 
every religious leader who has ever lived on this earth will eventually die if they haven't already. But you and I have a living Savior who will never die. We have the Lord Jesus Christ who can save anyone and everyone who will come to God through him because he always lives to make intercession for us. And that is the power of the resurrection. Let's pray. Lord, you know, we, especially we who grew up in churches or grew up around churches, we, we've heard the Easter story so often. We've heard Easter messages, probably hundreds of them. I've preached hundreds of them over the years. And Lord, I just pray that this resurrection season, that we will be gripped again with the power of of the resurrection. What it really means for us. You are alive. You will always be alive. There was no way, as Peter preached, that you could ever, your body could ever rot in the grave. Or that your soul could ever stay in Hades. You are the Son of God. You were the Savior. You were the Redeemer. You accomplished your mission. You cried out, it is finished, and it was done. As the writer of Hebrews says, you will never die. You live forever to make intercession for we who come to you by faith. Lord, may we just be refreshed and blessed again with the power of the resurrection. What a glorious thought it is to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are headed to heaven. Not because we're good enough, because we can never be good enough, but because we have confessed our sin to you. We have placed our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that He always lives to make intercession for us. He gave us that once for all sacrifice when He died on the cross. And He defeated the power of sin and the works of the devil by rising from the dead. Lord, it is a glorious thing to be able to share in the power of the resurrection by the grace of God. May we live like it and rejoice in it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.